Well, it happened. What happened? It was bound to happen eventually. Uh-huh. I'm a trad now. So does this mean you're going to shave your beard and cut your hair? No, 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 no. I am... Well, that's I am, what a trad does. It, it, true, true, true. I think I'm bringing a kind of uh, synthesis between the Novus Ordo and the uh, trad. I am mm-hmm. bringing them together in my uh, person. Mm-hmm. Two natures, if you will. Okay. Um, so... But one, but one nature is superior. Indeed, indeed, it is. But it never annihilates the other nature. Anyways, Correct. Sorry. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> it's an imperfect analogy in, in this yes. case. Yes. Uh, but last weekend, I was a subdeacon in a solemn high mass of the extraordinary form mm-hmm. uh, for a wedding. Nice. Yeah. And first of all, the wedding was lovely. The couple was lovely. I'm not going to dox them on this podcast or anything. Um, but it was great. It was great to, first of all, meet them. People mm-hmm. I met via Twitter, but never in real life. <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. It's so weird. But like, but it's also so good. It's so wonderful. Yeah. And uh, so I met a lot of people uh, that I had gotten to know a little bit on Twitter. Uh, spent, oh, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, with these people and with uh, my fellow priests, uh, little baby priests, Ambrose and uh, Chase, who did the heavy lifting. Because mm-hmm. this is what happened. Well, Chase oh, likes to lift. He does. And he can lift a lot of weight. Um, a few months ago, I got invited to celebrate this wedding, to preach and to celebrate. I'm like, oh, cool. That sounds like a great, I mean, wonderful. Yeah. Very excited. And then a few months later, I found out that it was going to be an extraordinary form mass. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is I do not know how to celebrate the extraordinary form. Mm-hmm. Not one tiny bit. My only experience with the extraordinary form, like practical experience, I've read about it and this and that. But practically, I went to a low mass like six years ago. Mm-hmm. And now they're like, hey, do you want to celebrate this solemn high mass? It's like, well, I can't do that. Luckily, Father Ambrose and Father Chase were a little bit more experienced, and so uh, Ambrose took on uh, the priest role, the celebrant, if you will, and then I was, uh, Chase was the deacon, and I was the subdeacon. And it's kind of interesting, the role of the subdeacon in, in the Solemn High Mass. I'm kind of, as a subdeacon, in a way, representing the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So uh, the subdeacon chants the epistle, which very mm-hmm. often uh, has references to the Old Testament. During the consecration, I wear a humeral veil over myself and I hold the paten. And it's kind of like I'm almost shielding myself from the glory of the, the new covenant in a sort of way. So there's neat like spirituality stuff in mm-hmm. there. And uh, it was a little, a little bumbly, but it happened and it was mm-hmm. good. And the nice thing is, the subdeacon's role does not affect the validity of the mass. Correct. So the interesting thing about <laughs> about the uh, the old extraordinary form is that all the marriage stuff happens, boom, right away. We process in. I saw that. I was like, that is so weird. Yeah, and there's a few little parts, and you know, it's like a blessing here yeah. and there as the mass goes on. Um, but yeah, they get married right away. Um, so that happened, and then it's just uh, mass. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, Shout out to the the servers. We had like I don't know seven altar servers. Did the MC do this? Yes, he did. He did the to snap, kneel and snap, yeah. snap. So when he snaps, yeah. we genuflect. Yeah, I think exactly. when he snaps, snaps, we kneel or something. I don't know. Or bow or whatever. Yeah. But uh, uh, a terrific. And you get uh, used to taking off the bretta. At well, the we name of to, Jesus. Yeah. Well, the thing is, for me, is that I took off my bread at the beginning, and I only put it back on at one point in time. We sat down because oh. uh, okay. I was preaching. 
Uh, and uh, so I was preaching, and so I didn't put my bread back on at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And then I was reading the epistle, didn't put it on, and I was holding stuff for the gospel, so I didn't put it on there either. By so. the way, those maniples were massive. They were. I was like, those things are huge. <laughs> yeah, the vestments were just gorgeous. It was funny. Yeah. You know, um, this is a difference between, I think, like, I've only been ordained four years, but it's kind of fun to see the differences between me and the younger priests. Like, the, this parish had gorgeous vestments, just amazing mm-hmm. vestments. And we found pretty quickly this full set of these gold vestments. And I'm like, oh, this is perfect. But the baby priests found a really, like, an extraordinarily gorgeous um, fiddleback. And mm-hmm. so their thought was, we need to run around this entire sacristy and find the matching set. I was like, okay, fine, you know, go for it, uh, do that. Uh, uh, but yeah, it was wonderful. Um, nice. And so that happened. I, I'm still processing my thoughts about it all, um, mm-hmm. about uh, the extraordinary form versus the ordinary form. Um, so that's going to be going around in my brain a lot. Um, but I, I guess I'll say I'll say this. Um, uh, sometimes on the internet, rad mm-hmm. trads will use as a pejorative uh, novice ordo priest, right? Mm-hmm. You're not a real priest, you're a novice ordo priest. So We've I reject- been called this ourselves. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I reject that understanding of it. But indeed, there is just a different level of priestcraft, if you will, in the extraordinary form. Absolutely. Like, it is one a very different experience uh, mm-hmm. being a part of it, like just very different. Um, and so the, I am very much a novice ordo priest who is just like dipping his toe in this like uh, extraordinary form world for a moment. Uh, so that was the big thing. And the thing was, man, uh, we went over it a few times, but uh, I was I felt going into the liturgy very unprepared in a way. And my mm-hmm. adrenaline was pumping the entire time. When I was chanting the epistle, like I could barely breathe, let alone mm-hmm. chant. Um, but it was exciting, and it was fun, and it was different. And um, so I liked it. Uh, nice. But I'm still processing thoughts about it. But yeah, there you go. I'm a dread now. I was, um, for the 125th anniversary of the laying of the foundation for our cathedral, we had a solemn high mass at our cathedral, and the rector asked me to be the subdeacon. So similar thing. I've been, I've actually, I have been to before to a, a solemn high mass, <clears throat> but um, um, never, and I, I didn't learn Latin in seminary. Um, so it's just like, it's something I'm interested in, but it's just not happening because I don't have time to learn Latin right now. So, but anyways, it was really cool. Like, I mean, the nice thing is when you're doing Latin and liturgy though, it's not too hard because you get exposed to Latin enough as a priest that you, you know what, you know what you're saying, even if you don't know what you're saying. You know, just you know? what you're saying and you yeah. can usually pronounce it halfway yes. decently. So, yeah. So that same thing, it was like, it was at our cathedral and I'm. And it's, I'm sweating because it's hot. It was like in the middle of June. <laughs> yeah. And uh, chanting the epistle as well and, and all this stuff. And But it was, it was it, it's a very unique experience to experience it as a priest. I experienced it as a layperson, like when I was a seminarian. And I found the experience vastly different. Uh, but I found the experience incredibly positive as a, as a priest, even though I was just doing the subdeacon role. Right. And that, I mean, something you mentioned, like something I've been kind of interested in. And I had resources. I had bought DVDs and books about it. But to be honest, without a pastoral need to learn it, I've got other stuff to do. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time there was some kind of pastoral need. Um, and so, um, yeah. So there you go. Yeah. So how, how was the reception? 
Reception was delightful. Um, How much dancing did you do? I did a good amount. Nice. Uh, a good amount of dancing. Um, it was very yeah, I'm, I'm it was proud nice. of you. Cool people. Everyone was dancing. Um, I am incredibly jealous, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. It was, not gonna lie, seen, it was a lot of yeah, fun. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, oh my gosh, this would be a lot of fun. But I'm in Canada and it yeah. is what it is. And so best wishes and lots of prayers for the bride and groom. Uh, it was such an honor to be invited and just to hang out with all these cool people. It was a good weekend. <laughs> nice. Awesome. And so, yeah. But enough about that. Welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Anthony. I'm Father Harrison. So I did something yesterday that I haven't done, I think, since I want to say this November or December. Okay. I went to a movie. You went to a movie? Yes. I was so excited that I finally got to go see a movie. And I went to go see Tenet. Oh, yeah. Is so, this the movie that's supposed to save the movie industry? I mean, some people say that. I don't know. It could be, I guess. But um, I, I'm a massive Christopher Nolan fan, as, as I think people know. Yes, he um, references. I love his movies. I think he's one of the more original um, filmmakers out there. Um, and I was, I was just excited. So it was me and a friend, a friend who's in my bubble. Um, so we went to see the movie. And we were the only two people in the theater. Okay. <laughs> which was great because it means we didn't have to wear our masks or anything because it's just us. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, at first it was just a delight to sit in a theater again. Just sure. the whole experience was just like, ah, oh, I forgot what this is like. And I saw, again, I've seen it online, but seeing the Bond trailer on a f- movie screen, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so good, that Bond film. Oh my gosh. Um, so the movie was... I'm still kind of like you at the extraordinary form. I'm still processing it. Okay. So, because for those who don't know, Christopher Nolan loves to play with the concept of time. Um, his first major film, Memento, is an exploration around the ideas of memory and time. For example, Inception is the idea through about dreams and time. Um, Dunkirk is three acts happening in different. Condensation of time. You have a week, a day, and an hour, uh, all happening at once in the film. Interstellar deals with gravity and space exploration and time. Right, so he loves playing with this idea of time. And this film is all about. Uh, he called like I, they use kind of a fake physics principle around entropy and talk about reverse entropy, which is really cool because it's not time travel. Then it's it was very weird and cool. And I knew that going in. Like I knew that this is. Because they kind of mention it in the in the trailer, it's, it's not time travel; it's inversion, right? So I'm watching this, and I'm like, okay. So I went into the movie knowing that the beginning wasn't the beginning, right? Okay. I'm. It kind of broke my brain. The movie, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure if it worked a hundred percent, but I'm so. I think Nolan. I think it was really cool that he took the chance to try this. Because he's not using he's not using CGI or anything like that. He's using like he's using camera tricks to give you the experience of people going forward and backwards at time at the same time. That is trippy. <laughs> you, yeah, you yeah you look like whoa. How does that work? <laughs> um, and I I have to, I have actually pretty much decided I have to see this again uh, because I've you know now that I've seen it, I've read a few things I'm like okay that helps make sense of this and this and this. But this is the cool thing about the film. So this is why I like Christopher Nolan so much. You've seen? Have you seen a lot of his films? I've seen Memento. I saw the Batman's. 
Um, I think that's it. Prestige, yeah. Interstellar. Oh, Interstellar. I saw Interstellar. Um, um, Inception. Oh, I did see Prestige. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't yeah. realize these were like Nolan films at the <laughs> yeah, time. But yeah, I have seen them. The Prestige is his worst film, by the way. The Prestige um, freaks me out. I don't I like not it. Like the, I did not like The Prestige. It was, yeah, anyways. Um, but it was a very interesting thing because in a way, and I don't want to, I'm not going to get too much into it because I don't want to spoil it either. Right. Um, it was actually, I walked away from it with two things. First, for those, like, Nolan has this, what I'd call like a very imminent frame in that he 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 has a hard time understanding anything transcendent. And yet at the same time, it's in his kind of exploration of the limits of our created realm that his failure to kind of break the limits points towards transcendence unintentionally, which is really cool. Like I find that very interesting philosophically and culturally that people are promoting transcendence, I think unintentionally and not knowing it. Interesting. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is the way he plays with time in this film can actually be a great analogy for how the the grace of the cross works backwards in time. Interesting. Through the Old Testament. Sure. Um, I yeah, I was just I was like, oh my gosh, that works. That's it. That's actually a great <laughs> analogy. So I just say that. So for those who are going to go see it, you'll see this, and then. Ponder like how G- the effects we because we believe this in in Catholic doctrine right that the cross is the means by which the grace uh, or the grace of the cross is what it's at work in Mary's immaculate conception. Correct. But she was born before the cross. Yes. So I think this film can give you an insight into that reality. Interesting. Okay. So bottom line, do you give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down? I give it, I, I think overall, I give it a thumbs up because I have a hard time not enjoying it. Like, because just, um, just filming wise, he's one of the best directors out there. Mm-hmm. Like, he just knows how to do beautiful shots. He knows how to make, he knows, how, he like, he makes a movie for a movie screen. He does, his, his movies are not as enjoyable at home because mm-hmm. they're not meant to be watched on a TV screen. They're meant to be watched in a movie theater. So I think for that reason alone, I, I think I think it perhaps was over ambitious, but oh, I mean it's Nolan, man. He's what one of the what more is there to say? Exactly, exactly. All right then. Uh, since there's nothing more to say, uh, let's see what <laughs> other people have to say on Twitter in this week's Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Summa Tweetologica. Uh, this week's tweet, <laughs> I never introduced it that way, this week's tweet. Uh, first up is uh, a tweet from J.D. Flynn saying a thing that I have been screaming at the top of my lungs uh, at in certain homilies recently. And he tweets, Christianity is at home in no political party. 
no ideological lens, no economic schema or social movement. Christians will only be at home in eternity. So there's a few things here. One thing is like, man, I don't know. I feel like this election is making Catholics crazier than normal. Like mm-hmm. election years in America always make people crazy and stupid. Like this is a thing that happens. Um, every election is like if you don't vote the right way, then the country <laughs> will explode. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying elections are unimportant, but the kind of um, cult-like fever that like that – Christians get into when it comes to elections has always bothered me, but I feel like this year it's even like weirder. Um, and I, there's definitely reasons for that with all the stuff that's going on in America. So I'm not saying it's unimportant, but what really bothers me uh, is when, like, you got two candidates, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and I get really confused and I cringe whenever someone is like, genuinely excited for one of these candidates. Mm -hmm. Like, I can understand reasons for voting for them, okay? You say uh, these are, you know, given what the church has said about how things are and the priority of um, uh, different, you know, morality of abortion and this and that, like, okay, I get voting for one. I don't get, like, being excited for one. Uh, Mm -hmm. That really confuses me because you don't have either candidate that upholds uh, everything that Christianity teaches about society, morality, uh, law, you just don't. And I, I think there's this, and this is my theory for a long time, is that for many uh, Catholics, for many Christians, uh, their first church wasn't the church. Practically speaking, their first church was their political party. Mm-hmm. These are the things that in their household got people most excited or most angry um with cable news playing all the time uh you know these are the the sounds and the voices that they've been hearing the longest and have the most energy behind and what really bothers me is when people pretend like they're voting for somebody for a christian reason when i mean they may have even good intellectual arguments for so but it's not actually why they're voting for someone because their first identity belongs to this particular tribe, this political party. And that's what really bothers me. Um, so there, that's one part of it. Um, but also, uh, he, J.D. branches off into economic schema or social movements. And like I said, I'm like okay with different arguments saying that, hey, given what we have, this is the best economic schema that we can think of right now. And if it was as simple as that, I would get it. But it's never as simple as that. There's, these are always more deeply ingrained things. And I think this all comes back to the fact that it's much easier to look outside and point at outside forces and saying, if we just do this, it'll fix everything. Instead of first looking at ourselves, at our own fallen nature, at what we need to do to become personally holy. And I think politics gives you a way out, a way to avoid the deeper questions in life. Because you can put all of your spiritual energy into this. And this is what I see happening in America. It happens all the time, but I feel like it's happening in a more intense way right now. Those are my thoughts. Okay. Um, Americans are weird. Yes. Would you like to go on? <laughs> no, that's it. That's all. No. <laughs> that's all you're uh, that's all I'm, <laughs> just, I'm done. Uh, that's the podcast. Thanks for listening. No. Um, 
how do I want to say this? I, I just, it's, I, I find the obsession over politics in America very weird. We have elections. Well, here, here first, because of our parliamentary system, you don't have set election cycles. Mm-hmm. which is good because what it means is that you don't have to ramp up for a next election because you don't know when it's always going to like for right now, for example, uh, the liberal party is running the country, but they're a minority parliament. They need um, the, they need the, they need to be supported by two other parties in order to keep in power. Mm-hmm. If they don't, if they lose that support, then they lose the majority of the parliament and therefore the parliament, when we go to another election, which is actually kind of nice, like because of the balance, that balance of powers actually forces us to not know. And so you don't have to like where like, I get very frustrated on the American side because essentially after the last election, it's now the four year t- conversation about the next one. Right. It's monetized. Like this is what makes money and the, um, the constant division that different news organizations are perpetrating are causing um are are doing it for one reason because it makes them money it makes them a lot of money and it's not they don't really care about the truth anymore um i just and i and that's for all of them not one or the other i'm just i just don't get it like i just do not get it and because like i i I say this actually from my experience on Twitter too. I know some, I know, listen, we joke about it sometimes about Canada and stuff like this, but Mm -hmm. like, I'm honestly amazed at how many people get uber defensive when I talk about things I like about Canada from America. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's like, if I say, for example, it's not perfect, but actually I like the fact that I can go to my hospital and not have to pay anything and not have to worry about, will I make my bills? Do I choose to pay rent or for the hospital? I like that. It's great. Sure. It's fantastic. And people come out like angry that I would even say that this is a viable option as a healthcare option. And I find that very disconcerting. There's a reason like there's a reason that we've talked about this before. And I think actually it would be really cool as an episode to go over uh, Pope Leo's the 13th document on Americanism. Yeah, we can go more in depth with that. But because, I mean, yeah, good. Yeah, I was just going to say, because I think you're right, politics, but I, I want to say, especially I want to say the last 20 years, especially with the advent of social media and stuff like this, it's shoved down your throat every day. And it shouldn't be. Politics is not life. It's an aspect of life. and But the problem is it's become life and it's not okay. Yeah. And like, okay, so the example, you're talking about your healthcare system. Yeah. Now, there may be pros and cons to the Canadian healthcare system. You're pointing out something you like about it. Fine. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, people can't take it just as that, something yeah. that you appreciate about the healthcare system. Because you have, by saying that, they feel like you're attacking something that's a deep part of their, their identity. And you see this, I mean, Twitter is crazy land, but also more and more Twitter and real life are bleeding together. And I've seen this in my parishes and it's very disconcerting. And you see, like, you'll bring up something that has nothing to do with the election. And sure enough, someone will, will jump into your mentions saying, this is why we need to elect so-and-so and blah, 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 blah. It's mm-hmm. like, why? Is this a lens in which you see everything? Exactly. That is not a healthy state of, like, your soul or your mind or your, you know, emotional life. You know, uh, and so that's what bothers me. Like putting aside 
all of the important conversations and discussions and debates we can have, um, there's too much energy being put into this. Uh, and I, it's, it bothers me. Or even mm. some of the uh, homilies I've given along this line, people will make comments to me afterwards. Um, and I don't think they even heard what I said because they can't. Because if you mm-hmm. see everything through this certain lens, whether it's red or whether it's blue, it really blinds you uh, to deeper realities. So I don't like it. And indeed, and a final point, yes, Christians will only be at home in eternity. We are pilgrims. And I think JD would agree with this as well. That doesn't mean that we just give up on this world. That doesn't mean right. that we remove ourselves from the political realm. Like we absolutely should be engaged in a healthy way uh, and striving to make this place uh, a better place along mm-hmm. our journey. But yeah, it feels like it's more than just life or death for people. It's the ultimate question for people. And I think that is not good. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I And the other problem is, is that because of these lenses, it destroys opportunities for dialogue. It destroys opportunities for the seeking of truth. It destroys the opportunity for authentic communion and friendship. And when that's happening, that tells you something's poisonous. And, oh, absolutely. And, and, and it needs, to, and so there's something that needs to be healed there. Yeah. And you know, going back to our last episode about the uh, spiritual world as well. Yeah. And if you don't think that like the enemy is pouring all kinds of gasoline on the bonfires that are already in our country, like you're a crazy person. Exactly. Like seeing so many people blinded by, um, blinded by rage um it's just like that there's something demonic about this as well mm-hmm. uh, where like all of your energies are being put into this instead mm-hmm. of into uh, your own salvation is uh distressing yeah all right uh this one comes from uh at uncouth underscore bard morris day and the ordinary time um so he says when i consecrated myself to mary last year i put my vocation and debt in her hands a few months ago, I got a check in the mail randomly from a lady in the parish. Today, I saw her for the first time since, and she told me she was clearly told to do it during her daily rosary. Uh, yeah. So, why am I sharing this? Like, listen, this doesn't happen for everyone all the time. Um, I've had experiences of providence myself, but I think I, I bring this up because it is. That's, what, that's what's happened here. God's providence and care for us has been expressed, and that we... Now he's not. He's not. What he's saying here is not like a. Um, it's not like a magical thing where if I do this consecration, then I'm going to get something that I want. It seems to me almost like he didn't even ask for this. He just said, "Here's, here's. I'm opening myself to whatever your will is," and then these things kind of showed up. And I think that's just important. I think we forget that a we forget to have the vision for what God is trying to always do for us. Like he's, that he's always trying to, what's the word I'm looking for? God's always trying to, um, he wants, like he is showing his love for us. He is showing us his care for us. And he does this often in very concrete ways, but we don't have the eyes to see it. Right. Or, and, and, and that, I think what at the heart of it is, it's not saying, God, I'm going to do this novena for nine days so that you do this for me. But it's the key to his tweet is the abandonment, right? 
I give this all to you. Do with it what you will. And then God just does. I'm not saying we can't ask God for specific things, but I'm just saying more like God does. That's how God often works. Just abandon yourself to him. And he will take, he will take care of things properly. Um, it may not be according to your plan or vision. It will often involve some sort of suffering maybe, but he'll also do things that will that'll be for your good and for your care. So that's why I like that tweet. I just thought it was a healthy approach to providence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is important because sometimes we we mix up providence a lot and we emphasize one side rather than the other side. Like, indeed, stuff like this does happen. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to realize that if you, the more you radically abandon yourself to God, the more you are open to Him taking care of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of times we say we put everything in God's hands, but we really don't. And I'm not saying that you don't like do stuff like, uh, let's see. Uh, let's say you have the debt and it's like you make this kind of radical interior abandoning that to God. I'm not saying that in order to do that, you just, you stop planning your finances and you stop saving and working out other ways to do it. Yeah. You don't but, go out and buy a Lamborghini. Right. Yeah. No, you don't want to do that. Take care of it. It's all good. And, and it's, so it's a tough thing to describe to have like a true genuine interior abandonment to God. And sometimes that interior abandonment needs to take uh, some outward signs as well. Uh, but also, so stuff like this will happen, but also, you know, uh, St. Paul had radically abandoned himself to God's divine providence. And what did that mean for him? It meant like when he was stoned, he didn't die because he needed to <laughs> die in Rome being beheaded. So That's it's like, right. So it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing for every person. Um, God will take care of us, but that might look different to different people. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I want to, I want to share a quick story about Providence that I had, if I can. Um, So when I was doing my ordination retreat, I was in Lafayette, Louisiana and, uh, and doing a five day retreat, um, with Father Champagne, um, and he, and so one day I was experiencing, like I was, I was told to uh, pray, um, to meditate on God's fatherhood for an hour. So that's what I was doing. I was meditating on God's fatherhood, and it was a really cool thing because, like, I was imagining. So, what does a father do? Well, a father plays with his child. How does a father play? So I, I was imagining like the father like throwing me up in the air, you know, like like a father does with a two year old and all this stuff, yeah. right? And it was really, it was a moment of real abandonment. And then in that moment of abandonment, I said, you know, it'd be really cool to have pizza for dinner tonight. <laughs> and that's all I said, right? Yeah. I go to dinner and I sit down. It's a silent dinner and they bring in the food and what's there? Three boxes of pizza. Yay. It gets better though. So... I'm beaming throughout dinner. So father, I go for my evening meeting with father champagne and I say, he's like, why were you beaming? Why were you so happy during dinner? So I told him the story. He goes, no, no, Harrison, you don't get it. Um, we, we never order pizza. Someone just showed up to the door and said, I think you guys want this for dinner tonight. <laughs> like, isn't that awesome? That's that's awesome. Yeah, and that's how God often does things. That's really beautiful. And so it's like it's okay to trust in that providence, but it requires moments of abandonment. And I recognize myself how often I forget to abandon myself to Him. Yeah, and I'll just give one like a, a smaller thing. And this was almost yeah. entirely just an interior thing that happened. 
it was, I don't know, a couple months ago, and it's Friday, and I'm in my holy hour. A lot of times uh, during my Friday and Saturday holy hours, part of the focus will be, what am I preaching this weekend? And I looked over the readings like a few times and I was getting nothing, getting nothing. And so I'm like, okay, this time, Lord, I'm really going to hammer this out with you. What do you want me to say? So I went to go do that and just got like, just got nothing. Almost like I was running into a wall with the scriptures. And I was getting frustrated and a little bit anxious about this. And I genuinely felt this interior movement. It's like I, the Lord's saying to me, I don't want you to focus on your homily. I want you to just be with me right now. And I was like, okay, then that means if the homily's bad, it's all your fault. Because uh, if you, if this is what you want me to do, I'll do it. But whatever. And so then I prayed and had you know a good holy hour. I genuinely sent uh, set aside the worry about the homily, and there was like five minutes left in my holy hour, and all of a sudden, I remembered something that I had completely forgotten. I had asked the deacon to preach for me this past weekend because he hadn't preached in a while, hmm. and so I was like, "Oh, I'm not giving a homily this weekend. I don't have to worry about this at all." And it was something just like entering into that little tiny movement in my heart uh, that was like, oh, the Lord wasn't giving me anything to preach about because I didn't have to preach. Okay, cool. So like even like those small interior practices, you can see God's providence working. And that time and like little moments like that will build up your confidence to give bigger and bigger yeses to God. So you have to be very, um, it's very important to look back on your day and your weeks and your years um, to... And ask the Holy Spirit to show you times where God in his providence has provided for you. Because that will make it then easier to say bigger and bigger yeses to God. You build up a kind of uh, resume with God. It's like, oh, God is actually always taking care of me. Even in those times where I was in complete chaos and anxiety. And that opens you up to more and more um, movements of his grace. And there's times where he just kind of like shows off in his love for you. Like bringing you pizza or... I'm taking care, like sending you a check in the mail from a random lady in the parish. Um, Mm -hmm. One one more story. When my buddy um, was discerning entering the seminary or not, he was praying in the chapel, uh, actually in his church. And he was like, Lord, you know, I'm really stupid. And I've got a feeling you want me to enter seminary, but you have to make it really, really obvious to me. And he's praying there. This guy walks up to him. Uh, he has a Knights of Columbus DVD on vocations, and he just says, I feel like I need to give this to you. So my friend takes it, he goes back to prayer. It's like, Lord, I know I told you I was stupid, but this was a little bit, you know, a little much. With like a little showing too on the nose. Do. A little too on the nose. <laughs> so it's like, little stuff like that will happen the more you open yourself up to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. All cool. right. Is it time to bring back uh, maybe the best bumper in Clerically Speaking? Absolutely. Let's do it. It's time for the index. Oh no, it's finally here. The index! Not my books! Not my books! When the index comes to town, we take your books and we burn them! Uh, it's one of Nick's, uh, producer Nick's best works, I think, is the index bumper. Hmm. The intensity, yeah. the chaos. Do you yep, disagree? What, what's no, the no, best no. bumper we have? Uh, I, I, Bishop Umbers. Okay, yes. <laughs> Go back and listen to the Bishop Umbers episode if you haven't. That, okay, I agree with that. 
But as far as reoccurring, as the reoccurring one, okay, yes. yes, the index, yes, yes, yes. So we finally read a book because you and I haven't been reading books since our last index, correct? I never read. I just Not make stuff once. up as I go along. Long. I don't even read the gospel. I just, I just have a spiritual intuition at the ta- moment of the mass. Yeah, and beautiful. I just, I just say the gospel of the day without having to read it. It's amazing. What a gift! I know. God uh, thank so goodness good. you abandoned yourself to divine <laughs> providence. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the prodigal church, restoring Catholic tradition in an age of deception by Brandon McGinley. Mm-hmm. It recently came out. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, anywhere fine books are sold. It's published by Sophia Press. And Father Harrison, uh, what's one reason why I like this book so very much? Because it's level-headed. Correct, but think of it even more. Oh, because he's from Pittsburgh. Yes. He talk about Pittsburgh. He uses so many examples from Pittsburgh, and it makes me happy. It's like, <laughs> I know those places. Like, oh, I, wait, I, gotta, I gotta play into Father Anthony's like ego and stuff like this here. Okay, exactly. yeah, Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, fine, fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, the gist of this book, it's, um, I mean, it tells you right there, Restoring Catholic Tradition in an Age of Deception. And uh, Father Harrison, I don't know if you agree or disagree with this, but it seems like in our age, there is a particular kind of dysfunction in the church. Is that how I want to say it? Mm-hmm. Like we have our own particular problems. The church always has problems, but we mm-hmm. have special problems. Every age has special problems mm-hmm. that are somehow related to other problems that we've had previously. Okay. And I think the... Um, what was most uh, striking to me was that I feel like his diagnosis of the problem and uh, found, especially in the chapter, how we got here, I felt very affirmed because mm-hmm. I feel like we have talked about this. Mm-hmm. Yes, a lot. Like I, th- The reason we recommend this book is because I feel like Brandon just took a bunch of our podcast episodes and made mm-hmm. them into a book. So we should be getting royalties. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Right? I mean, we didn't do any of the writing or the research or anything, but... No. But... Um, no. <laughs> so, yeah. Because, uh, like, the, the, the easy and wrong answers for why um, there's not as much mass attendance, uh, why young people leave the church right after confirmation, uh, why there's not um, a very well catechized or evangelized um, Catholic populace, why churches are closing, why vocations are down. What is the answer people love to give, Father Harrison? Vatican II. And we have rejected this, correct? Yes, we have. And this is, I think, one of the strengths of the book is he actually likes to refer to Vatican, especially Lumen Gentium. He likes to refer to Vatican II a lot. Yes. And... uh, the the diet or the problem he sees and he he coins it pretty well the this bourgeois spirituality in yeah. the church yeah and it's something that we've kind of talked about a little bit but the Sparknotes version of it is that um Catholics being a minority in America and always being a minority in America uh, being persecuted from you know the beginning since they landed here after years and years and years of this, there becomes a desire to be acceptable mm-hmm. in the church, to be accepted by the wider culture. Uh, after all, maybe you make friends with the Protestant family down the street, but you're not, um, you know, especially in the earlier times, you can't get a job because you're Irish. And it's not necessarily because you're Irish, it's because Irish means Catholic, right? So there's a 
desire to be accepted. And this is a tough thing that Catholics uh, uh, face whenever they're in cultures that are not Catholic. Are you going to be a prophetic witness to that culture, or are you going to try to ingratiate yourself to that culture? And he kind of points out that what a lot of people see as the golden age of the church is this time when Catholics became respected. They're part of the uh, bourgeois, bourgeois. How do you pronounce that in uh, Canadian, Harrison? Bourgeois. 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 Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those words I always get very like self-conscious about pronouncing. I was waiting for you to kind of, you know, really ruin the French on that one. <laughs> bourgeois. There um, we go. Right. And I think the one example that he gave of when it seemed like the church was doing its best, but it really reveals that she wasn't being herself, is the election of Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Because Kennedy's a Catholic. He's the president. And he talks about this speech he gave in the Baptist church saying that he would not let his private faith uh, dictate how he would be president. So don't worry about it. Uh, And, I mean, that's kind of an icon of how a lot of Catholics engage in the world today. That their faith is this private thing. It's not going to affect how they publicly act, right? Mm -hmm. So... When you've got a Catholic church that is very comfortable in the culture, that is, you know, in a sense, supported by the culture. You know, you had Bishop Fulton Sheen winning Emmys. You had mm-hmm. um, positive displays of Catholicism in movies with like the Bells of St. Mary's and all mm-hmm. this stuff. It seems like everything's going well. There's tons of masses. There's all this stuff happening, all because it was supported by the culture. Right. Once the culture changes... With the sexual revolution, you've got Vietnam, you've got all these things that happened. All of a sudden, the church has no legs to stand on because she was resting on the culture. And she actually gets sucked in with the culture. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Hence all the kind of stuff that happened in the 60s. This is my thing. It's like the the cultural... While it's true Vatican II got usurped um, as a kind of revolutionary a moment in the church it was that's exactly what happened it was usurped yeah uh by a revolutionary cultural attitude this has nothing to do with the council and everything to do with a revolution in catholic culture that is unlike anything the church has seen since the reformation yeah hence why we still don't quite understand what's going on because like i tweeted a few, last week or something like this oh so this is what it's like to live in the, Re- in the reformation because that's exactly what we're going through and so this is why i really appreciate what brandon's takes where it's like this idea that actually um it's interesting he points out the kennedy thing but i what i love to because it's not the first time i've heard like i've read this it's in uh, treasures in clay fulton sheen's kind of post-mortem autobiography he wrote it he never published it mm-hmm. um where 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 Sheen says that this is what he fears, that this bourgeois Catholicism, um, this comfortable Catholicism, that became too amenable with with culture, with or at least with American culture, and ceased being prophetic to it, is going to be the downfall of the church. And I like that he used Sheen because in a way Sheen was also like he was both the sign of. Of the culture and the church kind of meeting in the middle. Yeah. But he never allowed himself to be sucked in 
by this. And it's very interesting because like Sheen, for example, was a major critic of communism. He would often do Life is Worth Living episodes against the horrors of co- communism. As a right? side note, I love this about Sheen's writing because he'll be writing about some like mystery of the cross or of the Trinity or a life of Jesus Christ. And then like almost as a side note, he's like, by the way, those communists are super bad. It's just yeah. like one of these like hallmarks of his writing, yeah. uh, which I find uh, very entertaining. Right. But this is the thing. He was prophetic against a cultural force that he felt was really evil and needed to be confronted. Mm -hmm. But he also was critical of the American cultural force as well. And I think in a way, Sheen's witness is so important because this man who was so popular before the council fell out of favor after his ratings tanked. No one cared about a, a bishop anymore on TV. He didn't. He didn't change with that to keep the ratings. Yeah, he was the same man throughout. He was a consistent man, right? And and that's I think the key there. So I'm really happy that Brandon uses that because I think he becomes a symbol of of I think some real successes of the church and culture entering into dialogue and event and efforts of evangelization, but also he also becomes a symbol of someone who chooses the church first. Right. I, I thought that was a good, I mean, he, she doesn't have a much, he doesn't have a large space in the book, but I actually think it's a very pivotal symbol. No, I agree. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we ended up where we are. And I would say like that yeah. idea of bourgeois Catholicism, that's still going on today. I think it's going back to when we talked about JD Flynn's tweet. I think that's still what's happening. Mm-hmm. Catholics want to prove that you can be Catholic and be Republican. You can be Catholic and be a Democrat. There's a desire to conform Catholicism to those other ideologies. You still see that going on. Instead of witnessing to them both, challenging to them both, uh, I think you still see the same force. Um, Because after all, this is coming from a lot of Catholics who are, you know, have a lot of friends who are either Republicans or Democrats. They want to be respected by it. Instead of being what you are, which is a weird Catholic, Mm -hmm. Catholicism is inherently weird. like weird to this culture it just mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Uh, so i think you still see that going on and us falling into the same mistakes um so what's what's the answer how does how does brandon mcginley fix it harrison so and, and just as like a little side like this is like this idea of bourgeois catholicism is also kind of like um we've talked about um, Baron calls it beige Catholicism, right? Like this idea, yeah. like it's 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 really similar concepts. Yeah, yeah. I almost I kind of like the beige name a bit more, only because it's beige is so boring, <laughs> right? Yeah, but I think it's I think it's getting at um, yeah. it's the same phenomenon, but yeah. looking at it from two different angles. Like yeah. the beige is like you know Catholicism has been kind of whitewashed, yeah. but bourgeois sense is that it's been whitewashed so it can be respectable yes, or accepted. Exactly. Um, so really, I, I find Brandon's book is trying to be a hopeful cry towards becoming prophetic again as a church and to allow her liturgical and cultural traditions to become places of formation and unity in the church. He actually, he loves to quote old Ratzinger stuff around the, like, he, I guess why this is this is why I really appreciate the book too is that he's 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 quoting stuff that people certain groups in the church love to quote like 
um, Benedict Ratzinger's old thing about the church of the future is a pure church, but he doesn't use it as a programmatic thing. Right. Like, and he actually goes after the whole programmatic. He's like, this isn't meant to be a program. It's just meant to be um, a, a kind of diagnosis of the church today. And I really, I think that's really helpful. Like in a way, I think the book is a good, healthy dialogue around major themes in the church today, but does it in the spirit of charity. Yeah, I think he actually practices what he's preaching in yeah. his style of writing. Right. Um, that it'd be very easy to lean one way or another, um, to lean trad or progressive, but he refuses yeah. to do either. And he looks at things, I think, very clear-eyed um, and um, takes a deeper look at things instead of taking the easy way out or the easy answer. Uh, he witnesses to different kinds of uh, problems that are in the church. So mm-hmm. I appreciate that about his, uh, yeah. how he wrote it. So, so the solution, yeah, is this, we have to, and so this, the solution is really a, a, a what I, you could call like an ecclesial cultural solution in the sense of like really firming up the identity markers of being Catholic again. Like I know elsewhere in the book, he, he laments the loss of, I think it was called like third spaces or whatever like that, like yes. the barbershop and stuff like this. Right. And that the church can actually be a space for this. Where where people can come, their kids are, you know, sometimes, you know, the kids are running around at catechism and the parents are there trying to wrangle them together. But that's that it's a comfortable space where community is gathered and it becomes like where where politics can be discussed in an air of charity and stuff mm-hmm. like this. Right? So it points to what we were talking about earlier as well. And so he's really just trying to essentially say, like, we actually have to get. We have to be we have to kind of refound ourselves. And, I, and this is, again speaking to something I was saying earlier, he's refining ourselves though in our identity around the identity of the idea of the church as it's found in Lumen Gentium in the second Vatican council. And I thought, I was like, yes, yes, this is, this is, I mean, this is what we've been kind of saying constantly on Mm -hmm. this podcast is, is that the documents are actually meant to be the medicine to modernity, not the revolution that lets it seep in. And, and so this, and what's that identity is that the body of Christ it has, has the vocation to holiness for everyone, including the laity, and that that mission to, and that, that that vocation of holiness is achieved through your vocation and your mission to the world by being a sacrament of salvation to the world. But to be a sacrament of salvation means you have to take on a particular form, and that form is Christ crucified. And that's the, which means the church by her nature has to be willing to be prophetic, not to be bought by one political agenda over another, et cetera, but to say, no, this is what the church proposes this truth about how to live and becomes a space in which that's lived. So that means liturgy has, like, I think the stuff he brings up about liturgy is so good and important because it, um, like, and this is why we, we, we've talked about early on in our days about the tradening because these are the means by which the culture of the church finds its renewal, not in an ideological way, but in an organic way. Right. And I like his commentary on tradition uh, and him pointing out that tradition is for something. It's uh, for yeah. what's going on now. It's not just mm-hmm. a play acting or a retreat from what's going on. It's a it's for the culture now um, that you can very easily build a parish around a very good liturgy. Um, but it can be a very isolated, self-serving kind of liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, no, no, these signs and symbols are meant to um, speak to the world now. But the parish still needs to be facing outward uh, along with beautiful liturgy and understanding mm-hmm. of the tradition, which I, I really appreciated. Um, 
so I think, I mean, to put it simply, I think he's the, the solution uh, is a call to integrity for the church. It's his mm-hmm. ability to be who she is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's advice here. There's examples here. But there's also like a, a radical trust on grace. Mm-hmm. on Christ leading parishes back to themselves, on yeah. Christ leading his bride back to herself. Uh, and there's kind of um, pious and holy and genuine optimism in that. Well, it's hope. It was what mm-hmm. it is. Um, yeah, it's, again, it's kind of, he's trying to say the renewal is not programmatic. The renewal right. of the church is not, the reform of the church is not a program. It's 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 the Holy Spirit. and And that's just... It was refreshing to hear that because I think you and I, we believe this, but it's so easy to get sucked back into the normal way of doing things when you're in a parish, right? Not, it's nothing against the parishes themselves. It's, this, we got so used to doing things the other way for so long that we just, it's very, it, it's, it's, a, it's a force at work in the, in the parishes and it's very hard to lead people away from the old way of doing things. So, but, okay, so... Go ahead. I want I want to bring up one point of discussion here about about the book that I thought I don't know. It was an objection that was hanging over my head while I was reading it. And I worried that this talk about integrity is very good and important and in a way this is always a conversation in the church, right? The church is always reforming herself, right? Uh, she's always in need of reform because she is holy unto the Lord, but she is sinful in her members. Um so when there's sin, there's need for reform. Okay. When I was reading the book and this kind of call to integrity, I worried about a certain sense of exclusiveness. Now, I don't think Brandon argues this per se. I just, it was an objection that was hanging in my head though at the same time. Oh. And by this, I mean, so I, I'm pretty sure it's Bouye. It might be Daniel Liu, and I'm sorry if I'm getting the mix. I'm forgetting which one it was. It's definitely French. Definitely French. Wrote a book on the kind of a small book on the uh, the con- the impact of Constantine on the church. And essentially the argument goes as this, essentially that the church um, before Constantine was small. It was out there in the middle of nowhere. Like it was being persecuted always, et cetera. And then that was the form of the church for the first 300 years. Then Constantine comes along, legalizes all religions in the empire, and eventually pushes towards Christianity becoming the official uh, religion, or at least he doesn't make that decision himself, but he's starting to push that in that direction. Yeah. What happens with this though, is that it becomes the church becomes a place of here comes everybody. Yeah. Right. It, it comes the, the people who are very integrated in their faith, those people who take it seriously. And it's also the lukewarm, those people who are doing it for political or career advancements reasons. And uh, the people who aren't sure the the little, those who have little faith those who have great faith the great saint and the great sinner and everything in between that is the church and whoever it is that wrote this says essentially that this was actually a good thing for the church not because of the power she gained but because the, it's truly being coming catholic catholic means for everyone not that everyone um and that and so because and then so the church kind of becomes this place where the weeds and the wheat grow together yeah and I, I worry that I agree. We always have to be calling towards integrity, but can we? Is there a way to call towards integrity while allowing for the weeds as well? 
Yeah, and I think my response is that is that you have to have the integrity for the weeds to grow up. In a sense, um, uh, a tent needs to have tent poles if it's going to cover everyone. Mm-hmm. So if the church, like this call toward integrity to becoming, once again, who she is, you need that in order to cover everybody. Mm-hmm. It's when that falls apart. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, how many how many on-the-fence Catholics um, have fallen away because the church has stopped being herself. Hmm. And if she was, and if parishes were more what parishes were meant to be, wouldn't you have those kind of on-the-fence Catholics more involved with the sacraments? Hmm. You know what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say? Yeah, no, like, I, think, I think that's fair. I think that's fair, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's the antidote to that. Um, I also found that while the... The book is certainly hopeful and pointing towards ideals. He's also um, very aware of um, practical realities. Right. So I'll just read this. This is one is a uh, chapter, School of Grace. He's talking about family. And he's talking about uh, this idea that the family uh, is like kind of the, uh, do I want to say primal church or what's what's the family? The family uh, is the, the, oh my gosh, it's just, I, I can't. I scream it all the time, and now I'm just like, it, uh, right? It's like the first. It's like uh, the church. Uh, well, let's just use his words. So he talks about the family as like a little monastery, if you yeah. will. Okay, and this is just a paragraph I'm going to read. I'm just going to read his quote because it will sound like I'm commenting on it, but I'm not. When I think of the spirit of the monastery, I think of habits of life where all work is ordered toward the good of the community, where the good of the community is consecrated to God through regular communal prayer life. In the family home, this could take the form of constantly cheerful completion of chores from the, uh, for the common good, don't laugh, and obedience to rightful authorities directing these tasks. Okay, laugh a little. Authorities who themselves participate generously, cheerfully, and patiently in building up the common good. Feel free to laugh hysterically. While this vision might seem extravagant, as might the earlier vision of parish life, we must believe it is possible through grace. We must aim for it while prudently expecting resistance, most of all from ourselves. Mm-hmm. So like you see in that paragraph, like he's very aware that families, um, while striving to be ordered toward uh, the common good, all for the greater glory of God, are going to fail. That's still an aim we should have. And so I think there you have the balance. You have... Um, like the call to integrity, but allowance for failures uh, and for slip-ups and for messiness. Uh, and so that's why I um, appreciate the way we wrote this book. Um, so I, like, I, I, yeah, think, I, think the, I think the book really is one of the more important contemporary conversations about this. And he does it in a way that's very easily to read. Like I found it very, a very easy read, which was nice uh, as a break, but um um, but I think it. I think it can become a foundation for a lot of conversation in the church. Yeah, it was challenging, but not confrontational, if you will. Yes, exactly. Um, it was. Uh, it was. It was. It was inviting into a conversation. Exactly. And it was one of the f- few books I've written recently where my feeling was, my exact thought was, I want to give this to everyone on parish council. Yeah. I want my pastor to read this. I want our staff to read this. I want everyone on parish council to read this. This is essentially my plan. Yeah. And I believe yeah. he's coming out with like a, a workbook to go alongside this as well. I thought it was good. It's very readable. Does it and belong on the index? 
Does it belong on the index? No, this does not go on the index. This is the, uh, the opposite. one of the books that goes on the opposite. This is yes. closer to a must it's got, read. It's got the clerically speaking imprimatur. It does. And what else do you need after that? Exactly. So, uh, is it time? Oh, to tell the news. Yes. I believe it is because it we're is. going We've been to... teasing along people along for a while now. Oh my gosh. Well, this idea kind of came from you. So yep. I think you should be the one to announce what is going to happen. Fine. Um, so we, we were talking for a while and we said, it'd be really cool to have this person on the podcast because this person's doing a lot of good work out in the church. Um, um, and but we really need to like boost their numbers because they don't have enough of a platform. We need to really, you know, give them that, just just that clerically yeah. speaking rocket to shoot them to the moon. We're feeling a little bad for them, you know. Um, <laughs> no, but they're doing a lot of good work in the church, especially around a lot of themes that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I just threw out an email. We we talked about it. We said yes, let's try and invite with no expectations that this person would yeah. ever say yes. And we actually pretty much presumed it would be a no. Um, but they said yes, surprisingly. Yeah. So next week, we got Bishop Barron coming on the podcast. Yeah, no joke. Bishop <laughs> Robin Barron this is, is coming on our podcast. Happening. This is <laughs> actually happening next week. And uh, we're both really excited, obviously. Yes, very <laughs> um, much so. I, I, I'm still having a hard time containing the joy of it all. I'm looking forward to the conversation. We're going to talk about kind of, we're going to go two directions, really. We want to talk about priesthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in formation in priesthood uh, for many years at Mundelein. And we think this is, as, as you all know, this is one of the, this is one of the core things we try to live out in this podcast is, is try to give you a little insight into what the life of a priest is like in an honest, healthy way. Um, and in a human way. And so I think it will be interesting because he's also a generation later than us. So mm-hmm. to hear his perspective, his perspective as a formator, now as a Bishop interacting with priests, his hopes, his worries, etc. We're going to have that conversation. And then our second conversation, we want to help. We, we think it's really important to continue to have the conversations he's having around the council. And so we, we, we're bringing him on to have that. So that's really going to be the two focal points of our episode. So it's going to be, the episode is going to be a little bit different than usual. It's essentially going to be an hour long discussion. Pretty darn excited. Has producer Nick told you about what his plan is for the bumper, the Bishop Robert Barron bumper? No, he has not. It's uh, simple and brilliant. I'm very excited. Oh, wait, maybe for it. he has. Oh, don't, yes, don't yes, mention no, it. Let no. yes, that be a surprise. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Yes. Actually, sorry. <laughs> what are your thoughts? I think it's perfect. Um, uh, it's perfect for. It's very producer Nick, clerically speaking. Right. I like it. Yeah, but what are your thoughts about Baron coming on? Oh, it's good. No, I'm like excited to have a conversation. So our plan is not to so much interview Bishop Robert Barron, but like the reason why we invited him on our platform is to uh, have an opportunity to have a more conversation-like uh, setting yeah. uh, with two priests. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the plan. I think it's going to go very well. Um, and uh, I'm excited for it. I'm just looking forward to just uh, talking with Bishop Barron. I can't believe we can have a, yeah, this is something we can have a conversation with him for an hour. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Thank you for listening to Clerically Speaking. Please leave a review on iTunes. I was loading up the document that has our script. I'm very glad that Bishop Robert Barron is coming on our very professional uh, podcast. Oh <laughs> Please gosh. leave a review on iTunes. Seriously, if you've been listening for a while and you haven't left a review, just do it. Just go do it. Make that your penance for the day. Leave a nice review. 
Um, tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me mildly freaking out about the Bishop Robert Barron conversation coming up in a week. You can find me at FR Harrison. Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Peace. God bless.